Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Dana Cummings, Vice President for Institutional Advancement at Franklin College in Indiana. Welcome, Dana. Thank you, Brent. Happy to be here. My understanding is you also, uh, as a side hustle, care for Katahdin sheep, which I didn't know what Katahdin meant, uh, and I had to actually look up how to pronounce it. But for those who are less informed, tell everybody about the importance of Katahdin sheep in your life. <laughs> yes. Um, well, we do love Katahdin sheep in in my family. So uh, yeah, my family and I live on a small um, hobby farm is what we call them in Indiana. Uh, outside of town. We've got 20 acres. And right now we have about 30, I think, maybe a little over 31, 32 uh, Katahdin sheep. And so um, Katahdin are uh, a little different than most people think about uh, sheep. So I get the question a lot about, uh, well, do you have to shear them? And the answer is no, because um, Katahdin are actually hair sheep. So there's no wool involved. You don't have Katahdin for the wool. You have them for other reasons, including uh, meat. But um, but we actually have them to mow the grass um, as, as well as for meat. So uh, it's been really, really fun. Um, my, I have three kiddos and they're all really involved helping to take care of the sheep. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun for us. I am sure everyone is Googling Katahdin sheep as we talk right now, as I am. Do they ever get mistaken for goats? Do people say, hey, like, tell me about your goats? All the time. All the time. Yes. And they they look a lot like goats. Um, so they're easily mistaken for goats. The other question I get a lot is, oh, I bet your kids are really involved in 4-H. 4-H is a really big deal here in Indiana. Um, and, and they're not. Um, my kids are not super involved in 4-H. Um, Katahdin, let's just say this, they would probably not be winning any beauty pageants, um, you know, so showing, <laughs> showing sheep and so forth. Um, usually the sheep that win, you know, the, the prizes are really beautiful looking, you know, sheep and um, they're really well, well cared for and ours are well cared for, but yeah, they, they're not the most necessarily um, stereotypically beautiful sheep, but they are very sturdy and they're really, really good at what they do. Um, so yeah, we, we have a special love for them. Love it, Dana. Well, uh, thank you for sharing. And we are all now better educated uh, into that uh, corner of the world. And uh, But we've got more ground to cover. And so uh, we would not have a fundraiser from the state of Indiana if there weren't some connection to Kurt Simic, which is the case. Uh, and we will get to that along the way. Kurt was an amazing guest and um, has this incredible mentorship tree that we uh, continue to try to build out as we as we connect the dots in this tight-knit sector. Mm -hmm. um, but what we love learning about as we get to meet different advancement leaders in, um, you know, in this capacity is really starting with your own higher education journey. And mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. that you are an alumna of DePauw University. And so I'd, I'd love to just know more about, you know, pre-Katahdin sheep in your life, you know, <laughs> back in high school. Um, when you were thinking about your own college journey, what ultimately led you to DePauw? Sure, I love um, you know, talking about uh, those types of decisions that one makes um, early in life, especially as somebody who's spent a career working in higher education. You know, that's one of the one of the most important decisions that folks can make um, in their early years. Um, and um, I'm always really proud to say that I am a DePaul University graduate. Uh, my husband and I are both uh, graduates of DePaul. 
Um, and uh, I went to DePaul primarily because it's it's a great school that has a, a great reputation, but I also um, went there to play basketball. Um, I knew that um, I was going to want to play basketball um, in college and that I wasn't a division one level player. Um, so I was looking at you know division division three um, schools and liberal arts schools. I knew I wanted that type of an environment. Um, and DePaul's not too terribly far away from where I grew up, um, which was definitely attractive to me at that point in my life. I wasn't quite ready um, to venture too far from home. And so it turned out to be just a great, a great opportunity for me. I only played basketball for the first couple of years that I was there. Um, but like many small schools, you know, uh, grabbed a hold of me. And even without playing basketball, you know, um, I certainly had had plenty of opportunities to fill that time in other ways, really meaningful ways. Um, so, yeah, it was a it was a great opportunity for me. Tell me about uh, reflections on studying anthropology, which I feel like if you had to say what major would be best suited for fundraising, it has to be up <laughs> on that list. But then also, yeah. um, I would love to know more about your um, service program in Nicaragua. Um, my brother actually spent some time in Nicaragua, not for the faint of heart. I'm sure that was a really formative experience, but you liked it enough to go back twice. So right. tell us about that. <laughs> well, I so appreciate you asking about that. Um, and, and, you know, your point about anthropology being a good fit for somebody who wants to go on and become a, a fundraiser. I can't tell you the number of times I've sort of shared that with folks um, when they ask me about, you know, what I majored in uh, when I was an undergrad and I tell them anthropology, they, I think sometimes folks are a little confused. They confuse anthropology with archaeology and, you know, they, they think, well, what you're not doing anything. <laughs> you're not doing that now, but um, actually anthropology, as you probably know, is the study of culture. Um, and so it's really about understanding people. Um, and as you pointed out, I mean, I, I can imagine a better sort of foundation for working in development uh, because it's all about relationships. It's all about uh, working with people, understanding people, caring about people. Um, and I would say in spite of differences too. I mean, so really, you know, uh, my experience at DuPont studying anthropology, we got to study all kinds of different cultures, um, you know, all over the world um, who had completely different customs and traditions than those I grew up with. And so um, understanding those gives you an appreciation for them, I think, and really, you know, sort of broadens your horizons and, and opens your mind. So um, it was wonderful. And then um, at DePaul, we had an opportunity through what was called winter term, which is during the month of January. Um, it's a really uh, incredible opportunity for students to get to do something really cool that maybe doesn't, you know, fit into the curriculum otherwise. And so you can do a cool internship or you can take that class on film that you know you really are really interested in but doesn't necessarily fit in you know to the curriculum otherwise or in my case um, on two different occasions both my junior year and senior year I opted to go on a winter term and service trip um, to Siuna Nicaragua um, which is kind of in the center of the country um, and had just an absolutely transformational experience there um, getting to spend a lot of time with the indigenous folks there um, and I was on the construction team, which is funny um, now <laughs> looking back on it, but we actually did a really good job and we helped to build um, dormitories for an indigenous university there. Um, and so, you know, reflecting back on that, I, I feel, um, 
you know, a sense of pride from being able to make that type of a contribution, but more than anything, a sense of gratitude for, um, you know, just an opportunity that for me, as I said, was really transformational because it opened my eyes to the world. I love it. I love it. Have you, uh, have you been back to Nicaragua since college? I haven't, but it's, it's on my list. Um, it's absolutely on, on my list. Um, in particular, I'd love to be able to take my family to uh, Managua, uh, which is the, which is the capital. And it's really, it's really beautiful there. Um, and I have fond memories. We got to at the sort of at the end of our trip, we got, I think it was like three or four days or something like that at the very end of our trip um, in Managua, just to kind of have a little bit of a vacation. Um, and it was, yeah, it was extraordinary. So yeah, it's, it's definitely on my list. One of my um, really closest friends who I worked with early um, out of college, and then we went to business school together has been um on like a year long sabbatical with his family in Nicaragua in, um, I believe it's called Rancho Santana, which is um, on the coast. And they've got three little kids and they've just had this amazing kind of, you know, social media feed of of their adventures in, uh, in Nicaragua, you know, super rustic, but, um, yeah. but it sounds like a pretty, pretty incredible, um, uh, you know, cultural immersion for, for their family. And I guess their youngest is, uh, you know, fairly fluent in Spanish at this point, which is cool. That's extraordinary. Good for them. I admire that so much. Um, so for many of our guests, we will typically hear something like I went to college. I had no idea that advancement was a career. I was a student caller and then somebody (laughs) saw something in me Mm -hmm. and fast forward. And now I'm a VP. Yeah. That was not the case for you. It sounds like you had an early window into this emerging field at the time. Um, tell us about the first time that you realized like fundraising was a career path. Yes, um, you're right. Um, I did have an early window into fundraising, specifically, you know, higher ed advancement because my mom uh, worked for Kurt Simic for about seven years when I was like, you know, high school, maybe late middle school, all the way through high school, and even into the early, early years of college. Um, and that was back in the days when um, Kurt had multiple assistants, um, you know, different assistants to do different things. And so my mom um, worked <clears throat> for him right outside of his office. She had a little uh, cubicle right outside of his office. And she was so proud to get to do that job. I mean, I, I just, you know, I have a lot of memories of watching her in the morning get ready. And that was, you know, back in the day too, when it was a little bit more formal, perhaps than it is now. And, you know, she was just dressed to the nines every day and so proud to get to go in there um, to that office. And, you know, with all these people that she admired and were all working so hard for Indiana University. And, you know, my mom didn't get a chance to go to college. So for her, you know, to land that type of a job, um, you know, was really meaningful. I mean, I, she, she was so, so proud uh, to get to do that work and to get to work for Kurt and learn from him. And so the first time I met Kurt, you know, like I said, I was probably late middle school, you know, early high school or something like that. And, and I didn't really entirely understand what it was that he did, um, but I knew that I loved him <laughs> and that I wanted to be like him. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, follow in his footsteps. And so I've, you know, maintained that relationship um, all these years with Kurt and he remains my mentor to this day. And um, I frequently 
um, ask myself, um, what would Kurt do? WWCD. If I'm struggling with a, you know, a decision in my work or even in my life, um, you know, I, I, I ask myself and, and it really helps. I mean, it really does help um, to think about how would Kurt approach this? You know, what's the right thing to do here? Because he's just, he's just the best that there's ever been or ever will be at this work. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, we often, yeah, there's a lot of goat talk about Tom Brady in the Northeast, but I think Kurt Simic's <laughs> probably the leading contender uh, in this field right now. He is. Well, and certainly um, in Indiana, yes, greatest of all time. I mean, um, you know, and you alluded to it earlier. I mean, how many me's there are who were fortunate enough to meet him, you know, at an early age and get to learn from him and work under him. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's the greatest gift that I've been given in my career was to get to work for him and learn from him early in my career. Um, so it always comes back to that for me. What was your path out of DePauw? Um, you had sort of the basketball experience, the service experience, your studies, a window into foundation life by way of your mom's work and getting to know Kurt. Um, did you know as you're, you know, approaching graduation, I definitely want to work in development or were there interim steps? There were definitely interim steps. Um, I, after I graduated from DePauw, it was sort of a, you know, a, a mass migration north up to Chicago for a lot of my, my friends out of, out of DePauw, um, some with better plans than others. You know, I, I didn't have a great plan, but that was kind of okay. I didn't want to have a great plan at that time. So I lived in Chicago, the big city, um, for a couple of years and worked, um, tried to just sort of figure it out and what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. Um, and, you know, cobbled together a living. One of the jobs that I had was for a nonprofit organization um, that was interesting. And I got to watch the executive director doing some fundraising and sort of it all began to kind of click for me and come together that, you know, I think it's time I'm, I'm ready to sort of make that type of a commitment. Um, and so I um, applied to graduate school at what was then SPIA, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, now the O'Neill School at Indiana University, um, where I got to study nonprofit management and fundraising. Um, and so moved uh, to Bloomington, um, went to that program. And then it was the last semester of that program that I had an internship for Kurt, um, of course. Um, and then they hired me right out of that internship um, in the annual giving department in the back of the IU Foundation. I had my little cubicle back there. And that was in 2006. That's um, when I started there. And uh, fast forward, yeah. And so, when you think about some of your favorite memories during your time at IU, um, what stands out? I have so many. Um, I was there for a total of ten years, um, and it, so it was very formative for me. And I got to start, you know, as I said, at the at the at the IU Foundation, the big. The big house, the big foundation, the Showalter House, which is this, you know, just really beautiful uh, building. Um, and I would say, in terms of sort of favorite memories, I would point to that time watching Kurt lead an all-staff meeting. You know, and we had probably 200 employees. You know, back in that time, and he would sort of preside over these staff meetings. Um, and I think they were every month, and they were really more than anything else, kind of pep rallies um, for you know the work that we were doing. And I loved watching him do that because everybody who left the room at the conclusion of that, let's say, hour-long meeting felt really important and valued and like what they were doing really mattered and made a difference no matter what their job was. 
Um, and so, you know, can I, I ask? I mean, it's yeah. you know, rarely, rarely do I hear folks raving about the all staff meeting vibe. <laughs> so I've got to yeah. press and just ask more. Like, what were yeah. the ingredients in that recipe that you recall being high impact that maybe other leaders who are listening could could borrow from? Well, um, first of all, again, I think it was the, you know, it was just sort of the tenor of it. Um, there was, it was always positive. It was always positive. It was always upbeat. There were always good snacks, um, you know, good, like a good spread of, you know, maybe some donuts, some fruit, coffee, orange juice, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and I, so I think that, and that, I mean, I'm being a little flippant about it, but that actually, that stuff actually does matter, I think, because it makes people feel valued, you know, that you, somebody went to the trouble to actually plan for this. You didn't just throw something on the calendar and tell people they had to show up, you know, but there's a little bit of thought and care put into, you know, hosting that type of meeting with that many people. Um, and there was always a good agenda. Um, information was shared. Um, Kurt would share it, the, the vice presidents, um, you know, over the various areas, finance or investments or development. Um, would get up and, and talk as well. So information was, you know, was shared, um, important information that for me was really valuable as a new person, um, you know, because the work I was doing was very sort of tactical. So I didn't always get the, you know, the opportunity to sort of, you know, see things at the 60,000 foot view, but I knew I wanted to understand that. I knew I was headed that direction. You know, I wanted to be operating at the 60,000 foot level, you know, at some point in my career. So having the opportunity to be exposed to, that level of thinking, those types of folks being willing to share that information with me. I mean, I'll just, I'll never forget it. Yeah. I'll never forget it. And I'll always, always be really grateful. Um, the other thing, just an answer to your question about, you know, most memorable um, occasions during my 10 years um, at IU, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, I was director of the IU student foundation for four years. Um, and that's the, the group that puts on the little 500 um, which is um, the world's biggest uh, bike race. Um, and we have 25,000 people come out to that event every year. And so for four years, I got to be, you know, front and center um, with that event and all that goes into it. And um, so I have many, many fond memories of just being involved in that and getting to work with the students and the staff. We've had Matthew Ewing on the show. We've had Jonathan Purvis, the little 500, uh, I it's on my bucket list at this point. Like it's just there. Yeah. I've got to, I've yeah. got to experience it. I love it. You got to, Yeah, it. you definitely. It, it's definitely um, a can't miss event, especially, I mean, here in Indiana, it's, you know, it's kind of the biggest thing going on that on that weekend. And it is a, a spectacle for sure. It's extraordinary. And you'll notice, I mean, there is a common theme there between, you know, Matthew, Jonathan, myself, Kurt, um, it's no coincidence probably that all of us have been involved in the little 500 at one point or another. I love it. And um, can I ask, you know, going from student foundation, which is, uh, well, and, and maybe annual giving, very broad sort of yeah. perspective, mm -hmm. but then you did do a stint leading development and alumni relations in the school of optometry. So sort of other end of the spectrum, narrow, really focused yeah. constituency, <laughs> I don't know. What's the anthropological lens of like the school of optometry? Yeah, that was such a fun, such a fun job. Um, I loved it. I learned so much. 
Um, not the least of which is that, you know, optometry is a really awesome profession that really wasn't on my radar until I you know worked there and learned a lot about optometry in two years, you know, cause I, I had to, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good example of probably me. Yes. Leveraging, um, some of my sort of soft skills, I guess, um, you know, my experiences and knowledge coming out of anthropology, because it, it was a different type of an audience, um, for sure. So our donors were largely practicing um, optometrists. Um, and that was a different type of work, different type of environment, even just different in terms of getting appointments, you know, um, that, that type of thing, because uh, these are folks who are largely, like I said, practicing. Um, and so you kind of have to call on them, you know, at their office and so forth. And so, but I really enjoyed getting to know them. Optometrists, I've always found them to just be very down to earth, um, good, good folks um, that were fun to get to know. So yeah, being at IU, um, because it is such a big school, um, you know, allowed me to do all kinds of different things from, you know, running the student foundation and doing little 500 all the way to, yeah, leading, um, you know, development efforts for a school like optometry, um, which is very, very different. And the other thing I would say, I guess, about the optometry school on the Bloomington campus was it was sort of a fish out of water a little bit, um, you know, uh, being on the Bloomington campus, it was sort of the one school that had sort of a, you know, it was a health profession school, and most of those are on the Indianapolis campus. So we were a little bit, um, yeah, we were sort of, you know, a little bit the odd, the odd duck, I suppose, but that made it, that made it really fun for me. So yeah, I love that job. So you went from one of the largest, maybe the largest alumni communities in the world Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then have had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time at DePauw, mm-hmm. uh, the alma mater, which was, let's call it sub 35,000 or so. Uh, mm-hmm. And now at Franklin, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. sub 15,000. And so right. Right. very few people have been on both ends of the spectrum of literally mm-hmm. the largest and probably one of the smallest higher education yeah. alumni communities. And so would love your perspective on that transition and, mm-hmm. um, you know, pros and cons and reflections. Yeah. I love that question. Um, it was harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, I had a couple of friends who told me, you know, it's going to be a little, little bit tough, um, to go from a big place, um, with lots of resources, even though they don't think they have necessarily <laughs> lots of resources, uh, relatively speaking, they, they do. Um, so going to then a small school, yeah, it was, was tough. Um, and I think what I would say that was the toughest is, you know, my experience at IU was such that because it is such a big place, you're afforded kind of really the luxury of being able to be very narrow in your focus. You know, you, you have a job title, um, that, allows you to really do one thing or maybe just a handful of things and and get really good at doing those things. You know, so for example, you know, I was always sort of front facing. I was always sort of facing um, externally in all of my positions. I never really had to understand uh, gift agreements, um, you know, what type of language needs to be in gift agreements. And there was a whole team of people in the basement of the IU Foundation that did that. And they were really, really good at it. I mean, they spent all day, every day, you know, perfecting that. Um, And so, you know, when it was time for a gift agreement, I just simply, you know, got in touch with those folks. There was a process in place, you know, all of that. And then when you get out into a smaller shop, a much smaller shop, you realize, you know, you're looking around going, well, who 
who knows how to do the gift agreements around here? And then, you know, you realize everybody's looking at you like, well, you're the VP, you're supposed to know how to do all of that. <laughs> um, and so and that's uh, when in a leadership role, we start Googling gift agreements. Right. <laughs> exactly. Fire up, fire up the Google. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So, and you know, that's one example of many, of many, um, where it's sort of, um, yeah, one of those things that I just kind of took for granted in a big place um, because there were so many capable, competent, hardworking folks um, that knew how to do things. And um, and here it's a small shop. So yeah, I have to know how to do a lot of that stuff. Not everything, but a lot of it. Um, now I would say too, you know, so that's maybe um, some of the difficulty with making the transition. Um, you know, on the on the plus side, for sure, Gosh, I mean, it's fun to wear lots of different hats. I mean, I've gotten to do the coolest stuff, you know, working for DePaul and for Franklin. Um, I love, you know, being able to have a leadership seat, sit on president's cabinet, you know, being involved in the, um, the conversations about how to, you know, what's next for the institution and where are we headed and what's our future and what's our vision. I mean, that kind of stuff, it's, um, it's the most exciting for me, um, to get to do that sort of stuff. And, you know, in a, at a bigger place, it's just, you know, it's, it's harder to do. So being a part of the community here, a little smaller community is, is, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a joy. Well, I was in doing a little bit of research, trying to, um, better understand DePauw and Franklin and Indiana, um, Bloomington and, Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised, a little bit surprised to learn that number one employer of uh, Indiana University alumni is Eli Lilly. Uh, number yeah. one employer of DePaul University alumni <laughs> is Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly. <laughs> number one employer of Franklin College alumni <laughs> is Eli Lilly. Yeah. And wow. so as different as the institutions yeah. are, maybe there is some, you know, just commonality as you engage with the community, because I mean, ultimately you're meeting, you know, one-on-one with donors, Mm -hmm. how much do they care if they're one of 500,000 or one of 40,000 or one of 10,000, they're, they're one either way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Um, And what I love about what you just said, and gosh, I mean, it doesn't shock me at all to hear that, although I've never heard anybody um, actually say that out loud about, you know, Eli Lilly, but in that particular, you know, that company is just, it's more than a company, you know, for the state of Indiana. It's just, it's so incredibly important. Um, You know, I think what I would take away from that, or as I just sort of reflect on the fact that, you know, um, Eli Lilly employs so many folks from the state of Indiana is just what that means for higher ed in the state of Indiana and how we are changing. Um, when I was working for DePauw, I had one of the coolest meetings with a donor, um, a, a politician named Lee Hamilton, very famous here um, in the state of Indiana and uh, DePauw alum. And I remember him telling me that, you know, when he graduated from DePauw in like the, gosh, 50s maybe, um, that he got to call home once a week, always on Sundays. Um, And when he would call home, he said, you know, his parents would never ask him, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? What job are you going to get? You know, they would always say, how are your studies going? You know, what are you learning? Um, You know, how are you becoming educated? And so things have changed, you know, so much. And some of that's good. And some of it, you know, probably maybe not so much, but 
um, we become so focused on jobs and career, um, like it or not, you know, that, that is sort of, um, that's been the emphasis. And so for higher ed, that means we have to change and adapt, um, whether it's Eli Lilly or, you know, any other um, employer, how are we preparing, you know, our students to, to be ready for the world of work? Um, and how are we kind of communicating that on the front end too, so that they understand when they come to Franklin or they come to DePauw or they come to IU, um, you know, what that's going to mean for them after they graduate. So um, yeah, we're, we're not, we're not all that different, I guess, you know, really in that, in that respect. But in a certain regard, you do, um, you know, you are competing, right? You're competing yeah. for the Danas down the road of today who might be thinking about DePauw or thinking about IU or they're doing the visit to Franklin. And I would imagine in a leadership role, as you were describing, cabinet role in a small institution, you're privy to a lot more of those sort of strategic um, decisions, you know, competitive analysis. Like we might not talk that way in higher ed all the time, but the reality is it is really competitive. And so I'm, I'm just curious as you've been at that, at that table, you know, what are some of the themes or sort of points of differentiation that you all are betting on for Franklin in the coming years, coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, well, absolutely. And we talk about that, you know, all the time and it's enrollment, 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 um, you know, and that's, of course, not news to anybody and working in higher ed, um, all of the challenges that we're up against in higher ed with respect to enrollment, um, declining, uh, declining enrollments, um, the demographic cliff that everybody is scared about and, you know, that we're still experiencing and we haven't even seen, you know, the worst of it yet. Um, so what that means for every institution is that we have to do a, a better job than ever of communicating on the front end um, what is distinctive about, for example, a Franklin College education. Um, and so we have those conversations a lot. Um, and I think, um, you know, we're sometimes we kind of in especially in the Midwest, we kind of kick at the dirt and we're sort of all shucks about everything, you know, and so kind of getting over that and being willing to sort of shout from the rooftops you know, hey, we're really good um, at this or that, and we want you to know about that, um, you know, is something we're going to have to be a little bit more comfortable with doing. Here at Franklin, the thing that I would say that really does make us distinctive um, is, you know, the, not just the small um, sort of nature of the school and, you know, the one-on-one -on -one atmosphere that our students get, you know, with, with our faculty, but I would say we were doing what we call engaged learning or that outside the classroom learning really kind of before it was cool or trendy. Um, so we've been able to point to, to, to find uh, documents, materials dating all the way back to the 1930s um, where we're sort of talking about that type of education. So it's not just what you're getting inside the classroom, but what are those outside the classroom experiences that are complementing what you're getting inside the classroom. And I do think now having worked to, you know, in a variety of different um, institutions, we are really, really good at that. Um, I mean, I can say with absolute confidence that any student who comes to Franklin, you know, they're, they're not only going to learn a lot from their professors inside the classroom, but they're going to know their professors outside the classroom. They're going to get really incredible leadership opportunities, um, internship opportunities, extracurricular opportunities, you know, here at Franklin that are going to give them that sort of well-rounded, you know, experience that helps them once they get into the, the world of work. And, and given the focus on enrollment, but also, I mean, every school is focused on that, but 
in certain um, at a certain scale, it's just sort of uh, it's it's inevitably going to be siloed. Do you find that in a smaller environment there is more collaboration? Like even as you think about the intersection of your alumni community and then your applicant community, I mean, are there I don't know joint more of a partnership approach that maybe is manageable at at that scale? Yes. Absolutely. And we talk about that a lot too. And I, that's been another sort of just really fun element of getting to work at a, at a small school is getting to sort of not only know, but leverage what we call the alumni army, really. I mean, so, you know, you pointed to our numbers earlier, we've got about 10,000, you know, living alumni. Um, and that's, you know, a fairly manageable uh, group. So, we do use them quite a bit. And we've done something in the last year with our alumni council, which is just this incredible group of very committed Franklin College alums who work really hard on behalf of their alma mater. Um, So we figured out a way to sort of leverage that group around enrollment um, to establish an ambassador program um, where the folks are going to get to in their home communities where, you know, because we don't necessarily have the bandwidth to be everywhere, um, you know, at any point in time in their home communities, they can be sort of the key representative for Franklin. So we're just starting to dip our toe in the water of that, where we're going to um, actually roll out a training program for these ambassadors um, so that they're knowledgeable and they can talk to their local communities. They can show up at the Kiwanis meeting or the Rotary meeting or whatever the case may be and, and talk about Franklin. Love it. Well, uh, there may be an ad campaign in the future, which is number one employer of IU, Eli Lilly, number one employer of Franklin College, Eli Lilly. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you you're probably right. Um, but, I, but I think it is just important to, I mean, it's, it, it, it is so focused on outcomes and, you know, being able to, you know, to tell a story and, and maybe, yeah. I don't know, um, change uh, you know, uh, yeah, just be able to make, make the case right in, in yep. the context of what today's families and, and applicants, um, are, are looking for, um, yep. as you reflect on this career journey, um, you also decided to continue to pursue even a little bit more higher education yourself. So tell <laughs> us about yeah. what went into that decision the doctorate pursuit that you're uh, in the middle of, your experience at Creighton, how you balance that in addition to work, family, and Katahdin sheep. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so um, I am about halfway through my uh, doctoral journey at Creighton University. Um, Creighton is a really wonderful Jesuit institution um, located in Omaha, Nebraska. I have still not actually set foot on their campus. Um, uh, Isn't that amazing? It is. Wow. It's totally, it is ama- amazing is absolutely the word. I mean, that's the word that I would choose. And, um, and ordinarily, I mean, my, my program is hundred percent or almost hundred percent um, remote. Um, it's an online program, but ordinarily when you start the program, you get to go to campus and do kind of an orientation, but um, through the COVID-19 pandemic, we were stymied a little bit on that. So I will get to go to campus um, for sure. When I defend my dissertation here in a couple of years, but um, I'd love to be able to get there outside of that as well if I can. Um, But it's been a really wonderful journey for me. It has um, not been without sleepless nights and some exhaustion um, on top of, as you said, uh, you know, a full-time, more than full-time job, three kiddos and and the cotton sheep. So 
um, yeah, it's been definitely a lot to juggle, but I've never at any point felt um, sort of out of control or that it was more than I could handle. Um, it's a lot to handle and it's meant, um, you know, I haven't had as much free time, um, you know, as, as maybe other folks have. I mean, my, my evenings are spent um, doing homework. My weekends are largely spent doing homework. Um, but it's all work that I really, really enjoy. So, you know, my doctorate will be an EDD, um, so doctorate in education, um, and I'm scheduled to finish in May of 2024. So I'm, yeah, just sort of chipping away, getting done with my coursework, and will soon be able to, yeah, turn my attention to beginning to work on my dissertation, um, which really excites me. Um, it's, it's certainly overwhelming at, at times, but more than anything else, I mean, to just to be perfectly honest, I'm like, I'm ready. I'm so excited to get to get started on it. Without uh, putting you on the spot too much, but is there a chance in 10 years we're talking to President Cummings or what are the <laughs> maybe, I don't know, long-term implications or, or aspirations um, as you think about, you know, achieving that milestone? Well, I mean, certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I, that, that is an option or, um, you know, it, it has crossed my mind that at least, you know, if that opportunity were to arise at some point that I want to have the credential, you know, to be able to say yes to something like that or to pursue, you know, something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see, you know, sort of how things, how things shake out. I'm very happy um, where I am now. And Franklin's been very good to me. We've had a lot of success here, not just in, the advancement area, but, you know, institutionally, um, we've gotten through some pretty rocky, rocky times here in the last few years and we're thriving in spite of it. So I'm having a blast for the moment, um, and plan on continuing to have a blast. Um, but yeah, I mean, at some, at some point, um, serving in that way, I think would be, you know, a, a dream come true for me. And as I've, as the years have gone by, um, and I've, I've never done anything really professionally other than higher ed at this point, I've been in higher ed my entire career. So I know it, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I know it pretty well at this point. Um, and I think I probably do have a unique perspective on it. Um, being a woman, being a mother, um, having balanced all of it really you know, my entire career, um, I think I probably do have some something to offer in that respect. So we'll see. We'll see what comes. Love it. Well, I, there's definitely been a bit of a, I don't know if calling it a trend is appropriate yet, but um, Dan Allen, who was the vice president of advancement at DePaul University in Chicago, mm. recently um, took over as president at LaSalle University. Uh, Dan Lugo, who was leading Colby College at one point, among other liberal arts institutions from a both advancement and enrollment perspective, is now the president um, of Queens uh, University in Charlotte. And so there, there are more and more examples of yeah. advancement leaders who are elevating into president roles. I think in particular, given... Um, the fact that increasingly being a president is managing a PL and managing, yep. yeah. you know, a budget and, and getting people rallied together the same way that Kurt rallied people at the IU mm -hmm. foundation. And it's maybe less about the um, academic credentials. I'm sure there are people listening who are cringing at me saying that, but I, I, I think there are enough examples that are, that are sort of um, yeah. illustrating that, maybe openness to 
um, advancement leadership moving into institutional leadership? A hundred percent. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, not just because I'm, you know, coming out of advancement, um, but because I think it's really good and healthy, you know, for higher ed um, to have folks in leadership positions who come from different backgrounds um, and bring different perspectives and skill sets and knowledge, you know, to that leadership seat. Um, and certainly there are going to continue to be lots of folks who land presidencies who come up through sort of the more traditional track, you know, academic side, faculty becoming a provost and then, you know, landing a presidency. But um, I've watched several people coming at it from, as you said, different vantage points out of advancement, out of enrollment, so forth. And I, and I think it's extraordinary. I think it's really good. Um, I think it's a good match for where we're seeing higher ed sort of headed um, and the skills I think that you do need to be a really good, successful president. Um, one to watch for sure um, is um, President Matt Vandenberg. Um, he's at uh, Presbyterian um, in South Carolina. Um, he's just been there, gosh, maybe a year, if that. Um, and I watch him every day. Um, I watch him on social media to see what he's doing. And he, he and I were colleagues um, at IU. We actually were in the same program, uh, same master's program at IU. So I've known him for a long, long time. He's absolutely brilliant. And what he's doing at Presby is extraordinary. I mean, he's really, really um, providing some incredible leadership and he's already accomplished a lot, um, you know, in less than, in less than a year. And I dare say um, a lot of that is because he came out of advancement. Um, you know, he brought that ability and those skills, you know, to that leadership seat. So he knows how to quickly establish relationships, um, you know, and, and, um, and work together to, to find projects, partnerships that are mutually beneficial. So I've really enjoyed watching him and definitely encourage others to make sure you're following. Well, I know who's about to get an invitation to the race <laughs> podcast and his name is Matt Vandenberg. And I look you forward should. to uh, learning yeah. more about that story. All right, Good. let's close Good. on a positive note. Coming full circle. You have had to learn a thing or two about planned gift agreements in particular, thanks to uh, Ellie Ackley. So just tell yes. us about this yes. amazing um, success story and just oh, really as much yeah. as possible, kind of the, you know, the initial, um, seed that is planted in the context of what becomes the largest um, bequest in, in a college uh, history. I mean, that doesn't yeah. happen overnight, but ultimately, right. you know, how do you go, grow from sort of, uh, or, or, or move from that cultivation to actually yeah. closing in this case? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, getting to work with Ellie was a highlight for me, one of the great highlights of my career. Um, and as you as you said, I mean, these gifts of these size don't typically happen overnight. So, you know, I, I certainly can't take credit for sort of discovering Ellie or anything like that. Um, in fact, that was, you know, my predecessor's predecessor, I think, or even even a couple a couple of vice presidents ago. Um, who sort of established that initial relationship with her. Um, she lives down in Florida and so kind of began calling on her and getting to know her and um, understanding her, you know, philanthropic passions and so on and so forth. And so um, I got introduced to Ellie shortly after coming on board here at Franklin um, and just absolutely fell in love um, with her and her energy and her passion, um, you know, just not just for Franklin College, but for life. Um, and so we hit it off and had uh, developed a really wonderful relationship. And 
you know, I just really left it to her. I knew that this is something that she really wanted to do that was important to her. Um, but I knew also that it was a really personal decision. And especially when you're talking about plan giving, um, that, you know, that can be a difficult dis- decision for folks to come to um, at times because it has to do with, you know, one of the biggest decisions of your of your life. It has to do with, you know, your legacy after you're no longer here. And so um, really allowing her to tell me when she was ready, when was the right time for her. And ultimately what really moved her um, was getting to do it around her 50th uh, reunion um, from Franklin. That was really meaningful to her. So that was last fall. Um, and she wanted to be able to make this type of an announcement and to celebrate with her classmates in this way. And she she also was really interested in encouraging other people um, to think about doing that. And I tell her all the time she has. I mean, she absolutely has because it's gotten so much attention um, that it has definitely increased, you know, the interest of other folks um, in, in bequest commitments. So um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was a really wonderful um, journey getting to work with her. And I still work with her. I still talk to her regularly and um, we stay in touch and I let her know about all of the wonderful things that are happening here. So yeah, it's one of the, one of the joys of getting to do this work is to getting to work with people like Ellie. One thing you said stands out. Um, and I'll just ask you about how you approach it or your philosophy on it, which is the relationship started with my predecessor's predecessor, which I would imagine if we surveyed most of the largest gifts that have happened, almost every leader could say that exact same sentence, right? It, it, you know, sometimes <laughs> right. maybe somebody shows up out of the blue, but for the most part, it really is lifelong yep. stewardship. That's right. That's right. I will say that's probably one of the areas that we sort of obsess over at Evertrue because the number of times that we'll be reviewing data sets or you know, getting into the information and we'll see like a contact report that says, you know, great visit, you know, life-changing experience, great friends, a lot of the things that Ellie Ackley says. And then the last sentence is like, follow up in six months to start exploring a planned gift. And then the date of that contact report is like 2007. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, yeah. It's been over a decade. Yeah. They literally said, come back to see me. Yeah. A fundraiser left. Yeah. Something gets lost in the shuffle. Yep. Yep. How much like for all of the amazing Eliakli like stories that really are core to the advancement world, how many are just being lost Yeah, because the predecessor's predecessor handoff just doesn't happen. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, Absolutely spot on. Um, And I've seen that as have you. I've seen that over the course of my career too many times uh, to count. Um, You know, and there's so much to point to there. Um, You know, uh, the the, the rate of turnover in our profession remains, you know, really high. Um, That's an issue, obviously, because what we're doing is such a, a relationship business that, you know, I mean, we have some alums who have had, you know, uh, over the course of the last couple of years, you know, they may have had two or three different assigned development officers. So just about the time they establish a relationship with one person, you know, that person takes off for, you know, the next, the next opportunity. And so um, that's, and that's an issue. I mean, that, that sort of two, you know, um, one step forward, two steps back, I think in a lot of respects. So, 
you know, to mitigate for that, I will say one of the things I'm really proud of, you know, here at Franklin is we have a really, really positive um, team. I mean, we have a really strong team. We're very focused on positivity, about lifting one another up, about supporting one another. Um, and so as a result, we have pretty decent um, uh, longevity on our team, um, which really helps, you know, um, because they it's not like they don't have other opportunities. I mean, they're out there, obviously, um, lots of them. And I'm sure they're getting head, headhunted all the time, as am I, you know, as we all are. Um, but they choose to stay here because we, we make it um, about doing really good work together and then celebrating um, when good things happen. We make sure that we take time for that um, to celebrate. So I think if you ask anybody on my team, they would say, and this is right out of the book of Kurt Simic. I mean, I think if you ask anybody on my team, they would tell you they feel appreciated and they feel that they know what they're doing matters and is important and is, is, is helping um, you know, young people here at Franklin College. So that keeps them, I think, engaged and continuing to, you know, to, to show up and hopefully mitigates for some of that, at least at some point mitigates for some of that, you know, just getting lost in the shuffle, which absolutely happens all the time. I love that, Dana. Beautiful closing thoughts. And, you know, you wrote in the pre-podcast questionnaire, uh, no aw shucks about it. We're an extremely successful team. And the best part is we have fun while we're shattering our goals. So yes. Uh, we're a couple of days from the end of the fiscal year. I hope the goals are uh, are shattered and continue to yes. be shattered. And um, just want to say thank you for sharing your journey with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I so enjoyed it and so appreciate it and so admire you and everything you're doing at Evertrue. So um, it's it's been an honor um, to spend this time with you. So thank you for the invitation. A lot of fun, Dana. Thank you. Best wishes for continued uh, successes and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get you on that 10 back 10 year look back episode. So, uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, with that, everybody, I'm going to, Oh, I do. I have to ask, um, for folks who want to get in touch with you, um, what's the best way to do that? LinkedIn email, what are your preferences? Um, and anybody listening, please reach out and say hello. Please do. I would love that. I love to connect. Um, and certainly you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, Dana Cummings on LinkedIn. Look me up. I do check it regularly. So you can shoot me a message. Um, you're also welcome to contact me via email. It's easy. It's dcummings at franklincollege.edu. So shoot me a note and um, I'd love to connect. Love it, Dana. Well, someday I will see you at the Evertrue tent, maybe Evertrue yes, RV at the Little 500. Sound okay? <laughs> Sounds great. I look forward to All that. All right. Okay. With that, I'm going to sign off with today's guest, Dana Cummings, who's the Vice President for Institutional Advancement and Hobby Farmer at Franklin <laughs> College. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Cut. Thanks, Dana. That was super fun. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Brent. So we'll let you know when it's published. You'll see it for sure on LinkedIn. Uh, we'll share it with your team. Great. We'll share it with Kurt. We'll share it with everybody. And awesome. uh I look forward to continuing to get to know you. Yes, absolutely. Likewise. Take care. Bye -bye. Okay. Bye-bye.